0: Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. We are going to step away from the uh, series of Genesis today, and I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Samuel. If you would turn with me to Samuel, 2 Samuel. Chapter 8. 2 Samuel chapter 8. Okay, 2nd Samuel chapter 8. I just want to read one verse and then we're going to slip down to chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 8. Follow with me, verse 15. Oh, before we do it, let me give you background because some may not understand the background of this. David, when we talk of David, we're talking of a person in the in Hebrew history, a real person, that existed about a thousand years before Christ Jesus. Came so, we're about 3,000 years ago. David was made king, and he is considered to this day the greatest king Israel has ever had. Their greatest moment of empire reign was under the reign of King David. David became king, he was not the first king of Israel, he was the second king of Israel, and he was really God's choice for kingship. But David came after Saul, and Saul was a tyrant of a king not when he started, but when he finished, he was a tyrant of a king. And David, although not in the lineage of Saul, God would put David on the throne because Saul had really become apostate in his authority. So David would end up taking the throne. And the cool thing is is that Saul, the first king of Israel, his son Jonathan and David were best buddies. They they tracked life, they did life together. They were their closest of friend. Beautiful stories as you watch Jonathan and David's life together. But Saul in pure out stupidity, set up a situation of a war that God, his son, because he was jealous of his son's relationship with David, set up a situation of a war and got his son killed. Jonathan broke David's heart. David, although God had anointed David to be king over Israel, David would have to wait. He refused to take it on his own power. He was going to wait for God to give him the kingdom and then David would assume the kingship of Israel. So David had taken over the kingship, but we're coming to the scripture now, and actually in chapter 8 of 2 Samuel, uh, if, you, if your Bible's heaven, the title, there's a heading over chapter 8, it says uh, David's victories, I think. And it talks about all the great conquests. I mean, he just cleared out the, the, the world, the modern world at that time, and that was his kingdom. Uh, God's favor was upon him, and there was great things. His kingdom was, was large. And he was king over that kingdom. That's chapter 8. But we get near the end of chapter 8. Pick it up, verse 15. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. Now, I'm not going to go through the names of the next three verses, but go to chapter 9, verse 1. So David asks, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Remember, Saul was the first king. Son, Jonathan, was David's buddy. Is there anybody from that household, Jonathan, for Jonathan's sake, that I can show kindness? Verse 2. Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, he is lame. In both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. And when Mophibiosheth, everybody say Mophibiosheth. Mophibiosheth. Name your next kid that. When Mophibiosheth, actually it's a good name, actually. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness. Verse 1. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all, that, all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba Saul's steward and said to him I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 20 servants. In other words, he could do this. Verse 11. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a son named Mekah and all the members of Zeba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Father, I ask that you would help us to understand the significance not only of the historic moment there, but the significance of the heart of this moment for today. In your name we ask, Amen. One of my favorite stories, again, of the Old Testament is the story of David demonstrating kindness to this family. The passage is detailing the story of Mephibosheth and he having been vanquished from a kingdom at a very turbulent time in Israel's history. And this story is more than, again, a historic moment. This story, I believe, demonstrates from David the heart of God. The city of Jerusalem today is also called and referred to the city of Zion or the city of David. Still referred to that. It was a city in which David, he took it from the Jebusites and declared it as Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And when he declared it as Jerusalem, David marked the city that became and now has become really, it was just being made now by the Trump administration, the capital of Israel. Strategic. Because it has been the center of world conflict. Jerusalem. And in that city, the beloved city, David's city, you have this picture of the heart of the father to the heart of David. David. And there was no king. As a matter of fact, God would say of David that he was after God's heart. So Solomon, David's son, although he was maybe brighter than David, he looked more kingly than David and he acted very pompous. Although that is true, it was never said of Solomon that he had a heart after God. But David did. And God's heart was after David. There was something because David pursued him in all his mess. And he had a lot of mess. In all his mess, he pursued the heart of God. And God pursued the heart of David. So this story, the story about David, I want you to see it not just as a historic moment. It is. I want you to see it also as David representing the heart of the Father. In this particular incident in 2 Samuel. Let's unpack it here this morning. There's a few things, key things in this story that I think stand out and really represent something on this family day. Because when I think of family day, when I think of family, I think of food. Sorry, I think of food. Yeah, and so do the Portuguese. So I think of food. Um, There is, when family gets together, we have a meal. And so we go from our little table in our house to our big table, and we sit at the big table, and we put big food on, and the joy of parents, I have grown adult children, the joy of parents is sitting and listening to the discussions taking place. And the discussions at the time get really goofy, and sometimes the discussions are about movies that I have no idea what they're talking about. I remember the last discussion over Christmas time was about the new Star Wars, which I haven't seen and I get really confused with Star Wars. Um, my son always criticizes me that one time he took me to Star Wars, and it was epic. He calls it epic. And I fell asleep. <laughs> I mean, I fell asleep. He, it bothers him to this day that he paid a good ticket for me to go to sleep in Star Wars. Like, it's such a long movie, and I just like lost it at about the first 15, 20 minutes. I didn't know who was who anymore. Who's fighting for who? Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? And I just I just went to sleep. The chairs were really comfortable. <laughs> so that's been a bit of a sore spot. But they, the conversations we have, and we go and we talk retro stuff, and the holidays we've had, and the foods we eat, and all that kind of stuff. And it's, just, it's joy to our heart to have family talk around the table. I don't know if you've been to an event, a banquet, a, um, a dinner of some type, and you've got your food, and maybe you're looking for the table, and you didn't come with anybody, so everybody's new, and people all seem to have their groups, their pockets, their friends, their, their, their cliques, it seems, and you don't know where to sit. You've had that happen. You come up with your, your plate, and you're kind of looking, and, it's, and you're afraid if you sit with them, they look like they could be a good group over there, but what if they tell you, oh, sorry, It's saved. Now you feel like a schmuck. Now you have to go and find another spot or insist that you found that spot and make their lives and yours miserable for the next half hour. And then somebody notices you. They pull out a chair and say, hey, come on over here and join, join us. And you feel like you belong at that moment. Have you had that happen? You feel like you belong. Somebody just pulling out a chair and say, come on, sit with us. And like, you don't have to argue. It's like, yes. And you feel like, you know, you can sit with them. You've got, you've got some people that are your people. And you begin to introduce yourself and them to you. And you sit at their table and the conversation continues. You feel a part of something. Families, families, that's families. And many times it's not just your blood. It's that we are able to look over the fence to see somebody wandering. We're able to look maybe in the seat in front of us or somebody who sits by themselves on a Sunday morning and we say, come on, we pulled out a chair, why don't you sit with me? I remember my mom, after my dad died, she said one of the hardest things after having been married years and years and years and years, the hardest thing was going to church without that second person. Some of you are identifying. The hardest thing was going to church without that second person. Because when two of you, you can sit anywhere and feel like you're, there's a bunch of you. But when there's only one of you, You feel like you're the third man out all the time. You know what it is. Some of you are here. You are single moms, single fathers. You are, your husband or wife died or you are not married or whatever the situation might be. And here you are and you feel that. You know, know, you're going, yeah, I know. The third man out. And it's an awkward thing walking in until you find somebody who sits with you or somebody who says, come sit with me. It's an awkward moment because families need to feel included. And a sense of belonging. So, family day. What are we going to talk about on family day? Mephibosheth is a story of an odd man out. And it's a story of being invited to sit at the table. It's an incredible story. Because of how the story, I think, can relate to anybody. We start off in this particular story. In verse 1, David... He's at the top of his reign, and one day he's reflecting. We don't know what all leads up to it, except that it is the chapter before talks about his great conquests, and here he is in his kingdom, and he's thinking about Jonathan. He's thinking about he misses his buddy. He's at the top of the place. He's the top dog in the land, but his buddy's not with him. Yeah, he has all his kids. He has all his army. Anybody will do anything for the king. He he, again, he's at the top of his game, but he doesn't have his buddy. He's feeling it and he's just like, I want to show kindness. I need to show kindness. Anybody in this family, anybody in Saul's family, in Jonathan's family, anybody in this family that I can show kindness to. Now that word kindness is very interesting. I went and I looked up and I thought, other translations are gonna go and help us to understand what that word kindness means. And they didn't. Pretty well every translation says kindness. So, because when I went back into the Hebrew word, I realized that actually it means more than just kindness. But the translations didn't seem to pick up on this. So another word that is used is the word grace. Now that may not help us. Probably kindness means more to us than the word grace. But it means grace, it means kindness. If you break it down a little bit further, it breaks down into two more definitions, and the two more definition means loving kindness. So there is a kindness, you do, you do a kind thing. Yeah, I remember my mom saying, you know, when you get on the school bus and that person needs the seat, why don't you get out of the seat and let them have that seat? Be kind to them, she would say. Doesn't mean I had to like it. It didn't mean I didn't have to leave the seat and grumble while I left it. But I would still leave because I was told to leave, but I would show kindness. Kindness was more of an obligatory kindness. I'm obligated to show you kindness. So it's still kindness, but it's nothing more than that. There's an expression called loving kindness. You demonstrate kindness because your heart will not allow anything less. You lovingly are kind. Now that changes a lot of things. The person who you are kind to feels it. They know that you do it not because you have to do it, not because you're obligated to do it, but because you want to do it. Because you care for them. And that's the word David. That's the kindness here. It's not just kindness, not just grace. It's loving kindness. And the other word attached to it is the word mercy. I'm, so I'm going to put my, and I didn't see anybody use this, but if I'm going to do it. I'm going to call it loving mercy. So that day, David wanted to show loving mercy. Mercy, the picture of mercy is not just being merciful. In other words, pity you, I'll be merciful. Not just that. Mercy here is a picture of, I want you to succeed. I want you to have something. I want you to be looked after. That's the mercy. So it's not just pity you. I'll show you mercy. It's more than that. It's way more than that. It's I really want you to be blessed. Loving mercy. David wanted to show loving mercy. There's a picture of the Father's heart right there. Our Heavenly Father. Of loving mercy. And... So the story begins to unpack. Let's share th- six, I call it sick, today's family day. So sick take-homes today. We're going to take these home. Number one, how circumstances may leave you crippled. The story of chef. When he was a little boy, a little, probably, toddler, that's when his, chef's grandfather, Saul, he was king, his kingdom was crashing. And there was bedlam, war, blood, Craziness. Maybe you've seen some of the movies, you've read some of the books. When a kingdom is collapsing and another kingdom's coming in, every man for themselves. You don't know who your enemy is at times. You don't know who your friends are at times. It's every man for yourself. You grab what you need to and run. You gotta get out or you'll be killed. You run, you don't even necessarily know where you're running, but you gotta get out. And in the kingdom, in the palace courts, Mephibosheth was a toddler, grandson of the king. And the new kingdom was coming in. And there was war. There was blood, swords, spears, daggers, death all around you. Screaming, blood. And and out of that, the nurse of Mephibosheth grabs him and runs out of the palace. She's assuming that the new king, King David coming in, the new king would annihilate the entire family. Because that's traditional. And so you're not safe. She actually mistook the heart of David because she thought he would be like that because all kings are like that. So she actually mistook the heart of David because he actually wasn't like that. But she didn't know, and so she grabbed the little boy and she ran for their lives, protecting him. But in the process of the craziness of running, she trips. And in her tripping, she somehow maims his, the little boy's legs. She falls on them. We don't know what happened except... His legs become maimed in the running from the palace. They take off. He's lame in both feet. And until he is sought out by David to be brought back to the palace, he hides out in a land called Lodabar. Now, Lodabar, number of interesting things. The word Lodabar actually means the land of barrenness the land of waste. That's what Lodabar means. So he runs to this place to hide. He's a little, little lad, now busted up in his feet or legs, and he's hiding out in wasteland, in a land of, of uh, barrenness, pastureless, the land of Lodabar. And he stays in the household of Makir Now, here, the name Makir actually means sold into slavery. Okay, so now we're getting a picture. So he's not only in a wasteland, a pastureless land, he's in Makir's household as a slave. All he'll be is a slave. He'll just serve someone else at best, crippled as he is. He's in a land, lame feet, wasteland, into slavery, And when he is brought eventually before the king, remember how he identifies himself? Remember what he said? When he's brought before the king, the king says, are you Mephibosheth? Are you the son of Jonathan? And he says, yes, I am. And then he responds and he says, I am a dead dog to you. That's how he saw himself. I mean, not just a dog. Now, let's not look at your fluffy little thing at home. Okay? Dogs today have a really good Dogs back then didn't. They were scavengers. They were mangy. They just lived in the outskirts and got whatever from the dump heats they could get. Okay? They weren't the cute little fluffy thing you left at home to go home to after service. Okay? So, got to get that dog out of your head. You got it. When he said dead dog, it's not, oh, the dog died. No, it's like it's the bottom of the refuse pile. That's all he is. He's not just a dog, he's a dead dog. He's not worth anything. Dogs weren't worth much, but a dead dog is worth, worth less. And he saw himself as worthless. See the picture. It's not lost in the narrative. I'm from the land of Lodabar, wasteland, pastureless, it's nothing. And I'm a servant, I'm a slave, and that's all I'll ever be, and it's all I ever should be. And you might call me my feeble chef, but really, I'm a dead dog. I'm a dead dog. I'm a dead dog to you, I'm a dead dog to anybody. That's how I am. He presents himself and such to the king. I want to just say this. Mephibosheth is an example of something probably most of us, maybe all of us, have experienced and maybe are experiencing in our lives. When circumstances have pushed you into a corner where fruitfulness for fruitlessness and no expectation is your norm. You have no expectation for anything. Why would you? Everything is a disappointment to you. And you've been pushed into that place. Mephibosheth never asked to be lame in the legs. He never asked to be born of that family. He never asked to be taken to the land of Lodabar. He never asked to be a slave of Machir. He never asked for any of it. But when he first speaks, you see what's going on in his heart. I'm a dead dog. Because circumstances have pushed me to this place. When something has happened to leave you crippled, And removed all the possibilities for you ever having the capacity to achieve what you hope you might have been able to achieve, then you begin to understand what it is to walk in the shoes of Mephibosheth. It's interesting, Mephibosheth from childhood learned to fear the king. He most definitely never wanted to be found by King David. That's why he hid in the pasture land, that's why he was simply a servant. He didn't want to be found. Anything about him to David was not a pretty picture. I could only assume that there was a lot of hurt and regret and bitterness towards David. If David hadn't taken the throne, then he wouldn't be like this. Maybe it would be all different. And he was told that David, the reason this happened, I mean, this is better than what would have happened if David got a hold of you. I mean, if that guy got a hold of you, it would have been lights out or you would have been put in a dungeon or whatever. Whatever he was told, he learned to grow up fearing him. Beloved, I just want to pause frame because there are those here, in the sound of my voice, for whatever background you've grown up, you have bought into that you fear him, him, God. Somehow he's not good, not that good. Maybe you've come from a background and you were told if you do this, God will get you. I find that so unfortunate because that's not him. That's like the nurse who grabbed him and ran out because she didn't know what King David was really like. She assumed. And there are people who've grown up with a, with a fear, not a good fear, not a reverential fear, but a fear, almost a hatred fear of God. And so you do what you do because you've got to do it because God's going to catch you. He's going to find you. He's going to judge you. And we miss the heart of our father. Ephibosheth had grown up to fear David. And it must have been one of the most horrible things that ever happened when somebody came to him that day and said, the king wants to see you. That's not what he wanted to hear. In other words, he found me. In other words, my worst nightmare is about to happen. As bad as being in Lodabar, as bad as being house, as bad as being a dead dog, I'm about to now be dragged before the king. A fear. A fear would have taken over his heart. Let me take it to point number two. Chef was crippled as he fled. I alluded to this earlier. The accident that caused Chef's lameness, here's the thing. The accident, the running out of the palace, the nurse that day, the accident that caused him to be like this Never needed to have happened in the first place. But to say that again, never needed to have happened. It was a dumb accident, stupid accident. She didn't have to do what she did that day. All the things that brought to him to the place where he is now didn't really need to happen. I mean, it really has its own message. The situation that comes when a person flees the will of God things happen in our life that don't really need to be happening some of our views of god don't need to be our views of god some of the fears some of the apprehensions some of the disadvantages we are experiencing today don't have to be happening some of the anger some of the breakups some of the dysfunction in our families don't have to happen because god wasn't behind that and in this situation this didn't really have to happen it did too many times we run from the will of God. I mean, there's story after story in the Bible. Jo- Jonah, for instance. Jonah had a mis-screwed view of God, and when he ran from God, he didn't need to do that. All this whole thing of, you know, throwing into the water and, and the fish and all that, didn't need to happen. None of that had to happen. He could have trusted God, but it did. Mephibosheth is a picture of the crippledness that comes in the wake of self-pursuit. When I have a twist and a distorted view of God and I go about my own pursuit and I run from God, then things happen. And the answer is they really didn't need to happen in the first place. We sustain damage that makes us feel as if now we'll never be able to get to where we intend to be. Brings me to my third point. From brokenness and barrenness, to the table of the king. Suddenly, with all that background now, Mephibosheth is now standing in the presence of the king. And the king is asking or stating this. He is saying, for the sake of your father, Jonathan, Mephibosheth, I'm going to restore everything that was your grandfather's Saul's to you. All his property is yours. I'm going to assign Ziba the servant to take care of it all and manage it on your behalf. In other words, Mephibosheth, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do one thing. You don't have to lift one finger. Chef, I ask only one thing of you. Receive it. I ask only one thing of you. Accept it. Accept the restoration. Accept the blessings. Because they're intended for you. And as well, not only will you have everything you could ever need for the rest of your life, as well, I have regular dinners here at the palace. My family gets together on a regular basis. And chef. I've just put the order through. You will sit at my table for every single meal. You don't have to find a place back in the holy city. You don't have to find a family. You don't have to find a place of friends. You come to my table. I mean, that would have been quite a table, the king's table, right? You come to my table every meal. You have a place at my table. Church, this morning, this is the kind of message I believe the Lord wants us to hear this family day. The Lord gives us, he's saying, I'm going to work on your behalf. The resources that you don't have under my direction, I now serve you with those resources. And with this, David tells Mephibosheth to sit at the king's table regularly. It's interesting, in this little passage, this one chapter, four times he tells The account, the cripple will sit at my table. Four times, over and over. The cripple will sit at my table. The cripple will sit at my table. The cripple will sit at my table. I mean, this is, back to his first word, this is grace. This is kindness. This is loving mercy. Fourth point, just turn around and sit down. (laughs) The point here is Mephibosheth, like him, we can be so conscious of our lameness We can be so conscious about being a victim. One of the things I've discovered in the last number of years, it's called the victim mentality. We are so focused on being a victim, and the enemy of our soul loves it when we focus on being a victim, that it doesn't look like we'll ever be able to retrieve anything outside of being a victim. Whatever was lost, whatever is our past is irrecoverable. And yet, God is saying, whatever was lost and whatever was stolen is not going to hinder you from sitting at my table, to feast continually, to be regarded as one of my family. Mephibosheth will sit at the the table with the king. And I picture the scene. My imagination begins to go to a scene, maybe a year later, two years later. It's been happening on a daily basis. The king comes into the room. And sits down. And coming into the room are some of his, his royal mighty men. The knights that surround him. He has some pretty mighty men. These guys, some of these guys, you know, could t- one guy could take a hundred. One guy could take a thousand. One of them talks about he, he fought so long that they had to actually pull his hand from the sword at the end of the day. Because he fought so valiantly. These are top end guys. Generals coming and sitting at the king's table. I could just pick, they would be walking and, and, and with you could hear in their step, they're men of importance. You could just hear in their step. They're coming to David. And David, he's, he's one of the best of them all. He's one of the best warriors out there. And he, there they are at the table. And you have Ammon, one of his sons. He's clever and crafty. He swags into the room. Again, I'm just imagining. He swags into the room, sits at the table, the king. Tamar, his daughter, she's beautiful, she's gorgeous, graciously parades in and sits at the royal table. Solomon, brilliant, studious, heir of the throne, no mistaking, he's coming into the room right now. Absalom, handsome, winsome, flowing hair, comes in, sits down at the table. Joab, the chief commander of the army, marches in, he is... He's the commander of the biggest army of the world. Walks in and sits at the table. And then they wait. And they can hear the shuffle and the scraping as Chef makes his way. Can you picture that? And both... and he makes his way across the floor, pulls out a chair, and sits down. What a contrast. Everybody's sitting at the table. But that's the point. That's the point of the story. That's the point of the heart of the father. It's not about all the pomp at the table. As a matter of fact, what I like in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, what I like in verse 1 is what it doesn't ask. When David asked the question, who might I show kindness to? What he didn't ask, he didn't ask, who deserves kindness? What I like is what David never asked. He never asked who's deserving, who is worthy of kindness. He asked, who can I show it to? And that's the same today. You don't have to be worthy for it. You don't have to parade. You don't have to be qualified. Because he longs to show his kindness. Do you believe when Mephibosheth awkwardly takes his place at that dinner table as a lame man, do you think for a moment he doesn't understand what grace is all about? He gets it. He gets it. Oh, beloved, this morning, I pray we get it. I pray we get it. The depth and breadth of his kindness, his grace, his loving mercy. Number five, the king restores what we were meant to be. Mephibosheth's name means an exterminator of the idols. In other words, his name speaks of one who will battle in and be victorious in destroying the enemy's enemies, troops, or whatever is set up itself against what is r- real. He will destroy the idols. And I would think names were a big deal back then. I would think it's Mephibosheth. People all knew the names back then. They knew what your name meant. And so when he was in the land of Lodbar in the household of Machir, and he was a dead dog, that people would say, a- aren't you Mephibosheth? Aren't you supposed to be this great victor leading into battle and destroying the enemy? Look at you, right? His name was actually an insult to him until he's before David. And David very strategically, look at the text, calls him by name, Mephibosheth. In other words, man of victory, sit at my table. He's got all this deformity, he's hunched over, whatever. And David says, man of victory, man of battle, sit at my table. David's giving him a brand new name. His name is coming to its full realization. Man of victory. You're destined to victory. Praise God. Church, this morning, this is your destiny. Beloved here today, this is your destiny. No matter what has been in your life, we must not rationalize our restrictions and suppose that it must be the will of God and that nothing can ever be different. And the last point, and this is a significant point, is take your eyes off your feet. We're so busy looking at our feet, aren't we? There's something about when you pull out the chair at the king's table and you sit down and slide in. It's what you can't see and it's what you can see. You see, what you can't see anymore is your lameness, you can't see the deformity. As a matter of fact, as you sit there, you look like everyone else at the table. When you pull out a chair and you pull into the table of the king, you no longer stop looking at your lameness and fix your eyes on the king. He's there. And so I don't see, I don't see my dysfunction. I don't see my family of origin and all the horrible things. My family, my, my mom, my dad in the situation that they left me in. I don't see how I look like them, and I wish I didn't. I don't see how I don't fit in. I don't see my, my social awkwardness. I don't see all these scars in my life that has really set a path that has been a horrible path for my life. I don't, when I pull my chair into my father's table, get your eyes off your feet. Sometimes I have to think that we're so busy gawking at our legs. We're sitting in the presence of royalty. And it can be in church. It can be in your home. It can be in your time of devotions. And you're just, all your mind is going over the things that are wrong, the things that are. Beloved, pull up closer to the table so that you stop looking at your lameness and begin to behold the king. Begin to just focus on him. He's the one who made this happen. He's the one who made provision that you could be here in his presence forevermore. And the last point, take your eyes off your feet, fix your eyes onto the king. This morning, a number of little nibbits this family day because I really believe the Lord wants you to see his heart. He pulls out his chair and he says, come. Calls you by name, not your defeated name, your name of blessing, your name of destiny and future. He pulls out a chair and says, come and sit at my table. And yeah, don't be intimidated by the people around you. And get your mind off of a false view of the king. Because he didn't do that to you. He's the one who's restoring you. And when you come to that place, and I know we're going to say it's easy for you to say that. No, it's not. We all live with something. We all have lameness. We all have a mat to carry. All of us. I have to be, admit, when, when somebody says, Well, you don't understand my story, and I agree, I don't, and it can be horrible, but they don't understand my story either. We all have a mat, and we all must carry the mat. But there comes a place, do you know that the king, out of his heart, to want to demonstrate loving mercy to you, has pulled out a chair and said, Would you come to the table? Now, it's really up to you to come. Mephibosheth, he could refuse to come, that would be stupid. And he didn't, but he could. And I think it comes to the place of accept it. Accept it. I will restore everything to you. Come and sit at my table. Feast at my table. And when you are sitting at my table, make no mistake, your eyes will get off all the problems. And you'll see what royalty in the heart of the Father is all about. And it will be good. And it will be blessed. And you will know what it is to receive loving mercy by our Father. If you're here this morning, I invite you, this family day. Would you receive the heart of the Father this family day? As the father heart of David was to Mephibosheth is to us. Just receive it. Maybe you've got a great situation going on. Oh, to be thankful. Maybe it's not so great, and it's never too late to be able to realign ourselves at our dad's table. Nothing like being belonged at his table. In just a few moments, we're going to be singing a song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Amazing love now flowing down from hands and feet that were nailed to the tree as grace flows down and covers me. It covers me. It covers me covers me, all of me. His grace covers all of me, including my lameness. All of me. If you're here this morning, I want to pray specifically that God let today be a day that we can embrace His loving mercy as He desires to show kindness to you today. Open your heart. You can refuse it. That's your choice. I appeal to you, don't. Receive it. Come to the table. Not just today. This is not a flash in the pan. This is come to his table every day. Open up the delicacies that he is bestowing upon you and partake at his table. It's yours. It's everyone he desires to show kindness to. It's you today. So Father in heaven, thank you for such a beautiful picture of your hearts of kindness. And this day, I pray... That there would grow in us, grow in us, an embracing of your loving kindness this day, I ask. Lord, I pray for each person. And if you're here this morning, I'm not going to single anybody out today. I just really don't feel I should do that. If you're here this morning and in your heart there's an affirmation, I really want to really begin to understand the depth of that kind of kindness, what it means to sit at the king's table, to belong, to feel loved, to feel a part of, then I want you just to open your heart and would you pray this prayer with me? I'm going to ask you to repeat this prayer. We're going to pray it together. Father in heaven, heaven, I thank you that through this story I now have a picture of your heart. Forgive me for having seen you as one I need to fear as the one responsible for my troubles that I am worth nothing a slave to this world in a wasteland but God today I hear the call I hear the invitation come to my table that you have pulled out a chair for me for me You care for me. And you want to demonstrate your loving mercy to me. And so this day, I say yes. Let's say that again. So this day, I say yes. I'm going to do that one more time. So this day, I say yes. I come to your table and I receive your love.